Our study in the Sermon on the Mount in a message that I'm calling uh, Christian Love, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Uh, I'm kind of surprised, actually, that this place isn't empty, uh, given the content of the message that I have to deliver to you today, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So before we get into it, let's ask the Lord to help us with this, because uh, if there's ever something that was hard for us to do, uh, this is certainly it. So let's, let's go to him. Uh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes all things possible, Lord. We thank you that as believers, uh, Lord, we can do the things that you call us to do that are absolutely impossible in our own power. And Lord, as we uh, consider your words today, uh, just absolutely countercultural, uh, Lord, that we should love our own enemies. And Lord, we, help, we hope that uh, we ask that, that you would show us how to do that. Uh, this day, Lord. Uh, may these words sink into our hearts and may we be able to apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Corrie ten Boom was a, a Dutch watchmaker. Many of you may have heard of her, who uh, along with her father uh, and her sister Betsy and uh, the rest of her family uh, they helped save many Jews from the Nazis. And what they did was they had this bedroom in their house and they built this secret wall uh, and they were able to hide many of these Jews who were seeking refuge from the Nazis behind that wall. Uh, and they were able to save quite a few of them. Uh, but eventually somebody found out and reported them uh, to the Nazis and finally Corey and her entire family uh, were arrested for that offense. And uh, Corey and Betsy were sent to uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp. Uh, and Corey is, of course, the more famous sister, but Betsy was the older sister, and she was the spiritual leader uh, of the family uh, at the time. And so at Ravensbrück, in that concentration camp, their barracks were so infested with fleas that the Nazis would not even walk into the barracks for fear that they would be attacked by fleas and to be uh, covered in the bites that the, uh, that the Jews and the others who were imprisoned were, were afflicted with during their time there. And so Corey complained about this, but Betsy, as the spiritual leader, rejoiced about it. She said, uh, Corey, now we can uh, worship the Lord here unimpeded, and we can study these smuggled Bibles that we have uh, in our possession because these Nazis won't even come in uh, to know what we're doing. So uh, where Corey saw trouble, Betsy uh, saw a blessing. After 10 months uh, in the concentration camp, though, sadly, Betsy's health deteriorated, and she died on December 16, 1944, at the age of 59 years old. But as the spiritual leader, the thing she said to Corey right before she died was, uh, there is no pit so deep, Corey, that God is not deeper still. And what incredible words uh, from Betsy Ten Boom. And Corey learned many spiritual lessons from Betsy. Well, Corey was released just 15 days after uh, Betsy's death. And of course, during her time at Ravensbrook, she saw absolutely unspeakable horrors, the very worst that humanity uh, has to offer. Uh, and yet she went on to become famous because she became a very uh, popular speaker and author following the war. And her most famous book, many of you may have read, is called The Hiding Place. And it's, it's in that book that she tells the story of how she was able to hide these Jews who were trying to escape from uh, the Nazi concentration camps uh, in that fake wall in her house. And in that book, Corey also tells the story of speaking at a church in Munich, uh, telling her story when she came 
face to face with one of the SS guards who was one of her captors at Ravensbrook. And she gave her message at that church. And after the message was over, this, this SS guard, this tormentor, this purveyor of all the evils that humanity has to offer, uh, approached her and said to her, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that he has washed away my sins. And then he stuck out his hand for Corey to shake it. Can you imagine being in that situation? Well, uh, here is what Corey wrote in the book about that experience. She said, And I, who had preached so often to the people, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. And even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I tried to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give him your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than it is on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Is that incredible? That's one of the most incredible quotes I've ever read when you think about the conditions that Corey found herself in. Uh, most of her family died. Uh, Betsy, her closest sister, died. Uh, and to be able to uh, do what the Lord asked her to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, she was able to do that. And so uh, we're going to talk today about uh, loving our enemies. And as we think about this and where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount so far, the entire Sermon on the Mount has been building up to this climactic passage at the end of chapter 5, because of all the things that a Christian must do, of all the things that Jesus has taught us so far in this Sermon on the Mount, uh, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us has got to be the hardest. Uh, in fact, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it's absolutely impossible. We can't do any of these things in the Sermon on the Mount without the love of Christ in our hearts and without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to do the things that we absolutely have no power to do on our own. So let's see uh, how Jesus uh, talked about this, this uh, command. And uh, let's see what the scribes and Pharisees taught and then how Jesus corrected what it was uh, that they were teaching. So we'll look at first what the scribes and Pharisees taught in verse 43. Uh, Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your enemy. Uh, I'm sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, so that's the teaching. That's what they had heard. And they had uh, gotten that teaching from Moses because that teaching is found in Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, this is what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so the scribes and Pharisees shifted what we have to do to love uh, to who we are to do it to. 
our neighbors. And then they limited their neighbor only to their fellow Jews and taught them that they should hate everyone else. And that was a distortion of God's law that Jesus intended to fix. Now, if we're going to be fair to the scribes and Pharisees, if we're going to give them every benefit of the doubt, we can certainly find passages in the Bible where we might think that God does, in fact, hate Israel's enemies. Uh, God told them, you'll remember in Deuteronomy 23, uh, with the Ammonites and the Moabites, that they shall not be allowed to join the assembly of Israel because uh, they had refused bread and water to Israel after they had escaped Egypt. And you'll remember also that they hired Balaam uh, to curse Israel. Uh, and so uh, this is the, the, the result or the reason for God's uh, speaking that way about the Ammonites and the Moabites. Uh, you'll remember from 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God commanded Saul to go out and absolutely, utterly destroy the Amalekites. Don't leave one of them remaining because they had attacked Israel during their wilderness wanderings. And if you've ever read the Psalms, you've read about David uh, asking that God avenge his enemies. We see that over and over again in the Psalms. And so this teaching seems to justify uh, what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching about God and his uh, position on people who were foreign to Israel, that they should hate their enemies. But here's where they went wrong. Their misunderstanding was that God's commands to destroy certain people and David's prayers that certain people uh, be avenged were uh, due to their misconduct against the people of Israel. Uh, these commands were judicial for the things that they had done. They were punishment for wrongdoing that they had done to Israel's people. It doesn't follow from that uh, that every non-Jew is an enemy to be hated because he's only talking about Israel's enemies who had done something bad to Israel. Just because you're not a Jew doesn't make you an enemy of Israel or an enemy of God. And so that's what Jesus was trying to correct. And in fact, uh, God told the Israelites on more than one occasion that they should actually help their enemies so we see this in Exodus chapter 23. He said, If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. So help your enemy. Proverbs 25, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And of course, we know that there are many passages uh, in the Old Testament about how the Israelites were to treat uh, the foreigner and the sojourner. So just one example from Exodus chapter 22, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. So as we look back on what some of the things the Old Testament said, uh, you could understand that the Israelites might think they were to hate their enemies. Uh, that's not what God said. He, he wanted them to uh, take vengeance on the people that God told them to take vengeance on. So we have that kind of idea. We also see that God uh, tells them to help their enemies. But what was altogether completely new, that it would be completely foreign to the people of Israel, was that they should love their enemies and then pray for those who persecuted them. So we'll look at verses 44 and 45 and then look at Jesus' correction. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Now, this idea of loving our enemies is difficult. What exactly do we mean by love? Well, there are four Greek words that are generally used to, to depict love. Uh, and one of them is this word storge, and it means familial love, like the, the love we might have between siblings or the love that we might have uh, father to, to son or, or mother to daughter, something like that. We love each other with a storge kind of love. Eros is a more sexual kind of love. It's a passionate kind of love. It's the love between two spouses. And sometimes it's even used uh, when it is uh, referring to uh, lustful thoughts that are mistaken uh, as love between two people. Uh, so that's Eros love. Philia love is the kind of love between two close friends. When we read of the love between David and Jonathan in the Bible, that's Philia kind of love. Uh, and so what I want you to see is that what all three of these kinds of love have in common is that there is relationship between these people. These people know each other and they like each other as well, even though they love each other too. <clears throat> now, agape love is the fourth kind of love, and that's a different kind of love than the first three. Agape means unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. Now, we most likely have this kind of agape love for our family and for our friends and for our spouse. Uh, we have that kind of goodwill. But we can have agape love for anyone, even a total stranger, even an enemy, and even someone who has done the worst possible thing imaginable to us. We can choose to love that person with agape love, uh, with unconquerable benevolence, with invincible goodwill, and we can love with that kind of love because loving someone is different than liking someone. We don't have to like someone necessarily to love someone. You have to like someone to give the first three kinds of love, the storge love, the eros love, the philia love. You have to like that person to give that kind of love. But agape love, love is different because it's an act of the will. It's not an act of our emotions. We choose it. And when you choose to love someone, no matter uh, what that person has done to you, no matter how deeply they have hurt you, whether they've asked for you to forgive them, whether they love you back with the kind of love that you're called to love them with, even if that person has been your arch enemy, that reflects the love of Christ when we're able to do that. And it comes from the power of Jesus that only he can give to love the truly unlovable. And that's the kind of love that Corey Ten Boom showed to that SS officer, loving someone who was absolutely unlovable. It's a decision empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us have people in our lives who have done something really terrible to us, and they've hurt us very deeply. It could be a family member or a friend. It could be a coworker. It could be an employer. It could be a business partner. It could be a pastor. It could be a priest. There are lots of different people who have hurt us. And, and that person may now even be our arch enemy, uh, Joker to Batman, Darth Vader uh, to Luke Skywalker, Thanos to the Avengers, that kind of arch enemy. That's what we could be talking about here. They've done wicked things. They've killed our family members. Uh, but remember that uh, when we think about uh, our pain, how we respond to it really shows the level of our own spiritual maturity, even if that person is our enemy. Remember last week, we, we talked about how we're supposed to turn the other cheek, give up our cloak, go the extra mile with the one who makes us walk one mile with him. We are taught, as Jesus said, we do not resist the wicked man. That's what we're told to do. 
We give up our right to justice and we submit to that wicked man. But that's passive activity. Uh, We submit. What Jesus is calling us today to do is something far beyond passive activity. It's active activity, doing something positive for this person. We we more than just submitting to our enemies, we, we do something for their good. We pray for them uh, and we love them as enemies. Now think about that. How hard is it sometimes for us even to make time to pray for the people we love? Uh, how are we supposed to find it in our, within ourselves to get down on our knees and pray for that person who has done all sorts of evil things to us? That is a really difficult thing to do. One thing that I learned when I was going through a very difficult time in life is that praying for the person who was hurting me the most actually helped me probably more than it helped the person that I was praying for. Uh, I considered that person a friend, and yet we were just going through such a difficult season, and he was destroying me. And uh, holding that person out as an enemy and, and allowing this hatred to fester in our own lives, is going to make us a bitter person, a dark person. It certainly, it did that for me. The first time you pray for an ex, or you pray for an abuser, or you pray for someone who has done the most unspeakable things to you, uh, the person who ripped you off or whatever, you can, you can taste the bile in your mouth that you literally feel like throwing up as you do it. That's how revolting it is the first time you pray for an enemy. I remember Molly and I doing what we called prayer walks during some of my darkest days. And we would walk the neighborhood and uh, we would pray for friends, family, loved ones, and that would take uh, the, the focus off of the problems that we were having, and that helped. And then Molly started praying for those who were hurting us, and uh, I could not join in. I just I couldn't do it. I could not find it within myself to do it. And over time, as we continued to do it, I, I dipped my toe in the water of praying for my enemies a little bit, and it was really hard. And uh, after a while, it becomes a little bit more of a habit, but I'm not saying it ever becomes easy. It never becomes easy. But over time, I think we can develop the habit of loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. And if we do it enough, we may even find that we find ourselves loving the person that we're praying for and hoping uh, for their goodwill. So uh, it's a really difficult thing to do, though. And most of us have felt the power of uh, the freedom of forgiving someone who has wronged us in some way. But loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you even goes a step beyond uh, forgiveness because it's really hard to love your enemy and pray for them if you haven't first forgiven them. And the power uh, of loving them and praying for them is just like the power of forgiveness. It frees us from this uh, ugly bitterness that manifests itself inside of us. And when we do this, we become children of our Father in heaven. Uh, Your translation may say we become uh, like sons of our Father in heaven. The meaning of that phrase is that we become like our Father in heaven when we do that. Uh, in the Bible, as we've seen in the past, when, you, when somebody is called son of something, it means that they exhibit the characteristics of that thing that they're being compared to. So like Barnabas, for example, was called son of encouragement because he's an encourager. So we're called like uh, sons of our Father in heaven uh, when we do these things. And what is our Father in heaven like? 
Well, he loves his enemies, and he does that by causing his son to reign on the evil and the good, uh, and by allowing uh, his reign to fall on them as well. Everybody enjoys the benefits, and we're to do the same. We are most like God when we are loving our enemies. First John uh, chapter 4, verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The thing that should set Christians apart is our love for everyone. And so even the pagans love those who, uh, who love them. So as a Christian, does your love set you apart from the world? That's the question we need to ask, and that's what Jesus is going to say in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Don't even the pagans do that. Jesus' illustrations show that we are not to limit our love only to those who love us. Uh, that's, we're supposed to be distinguished from the rest of the world. We're not supposed to look just like the rest of the world. So tax collectors, remember, Matthew, who wrote the book we're studying, was a tax collector, and they were the most hated people in Jewish society because first, they worked for Rome, and that was bad enough. But second, they skimmed more than they needed to take from uh, their fellow Jews uh, than, than than the Romans required, and they lined their own pockets with their prophets. And so they were thieves and they were villains, but even tax collectors love their families. And if we greet only our own people, well, everybody does that. We get no credit for that. Everyone greets their own people. Even the pagans do that. Even the scribes and the Pharisees do that. So the question that Jesus asked at the, in verse 47 here, what are you doing more than the others, is really a key question. To ask it another way, we might ask, what are you doing that shows you are a Christian? Or what are you doing so that the world can see that you are different from everybody else that they come in contact with? Now, you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that the world and its morality and its ethics are degenerating at a rapid rate. Uh, People set their own standards of right and wrong, and uh, most people are satisfied with not being worse than the average morally, and that average continues to drop. Uh, And so Christians, though, we, we cannot be satisfied with such a low bar. We have a much higher ethic than that. When we started this study on the Sermon on the Mount about four months ago or so, I said the central theme in the whole sermon was be different. And so look at all the ways that we have to be different from the world in what we've studied so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to be poor in spirit while the world is proud and self-reliant and self-sufficient. We have to be mourning our sin while the world celebrates theirs. We're called to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness while the world hungers and thirsts for money and power and sex and stuff and whatever else that it can get our hands on, at their hands on. We're called to be pure in heart while the world invents new ways of sinning. And we have to be peacemakers in a world that is contentious and especially now wants to contend with us uh, as Christians. We have to do all these things. We have to be salt and light in a dark and bland world. We can't be angry. We can't lust. We can't commit adultery or speak lies. And we have to turn the other cheek and not resist the wicked person. Each one of these things is absolutely impossible. How much more impossible to do all of them and then to do them all with a happy heart at the same time, with the right heart attitude. It's impossible 
So we've been climbing the mountain so far in sermon in, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Uh, each uh, command that Jesus gives us is higher than the one before it and harder than the one before it. And the hardest one of all is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But of all the things that make a Christian distinct from the world, this is the one that sets us apart the most. The most distinguishing feature of a Christian is his love for other people. So we come to verse 48, uh, which is actually a summary statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus corrected all of the compromise standards of the, sta- of the uh, scribes and Pharisees and all of their watering down of the Old Testament law that Jesus came to fulfill, not to abolish. The moral standard is actually much higher than anyone was teaching or believing or that anyone could possibly attain. The standard is perfection. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let me remind you one more time that we don't need a different degree of righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. We don't need to do more good works than the scribes and Pharisees to be righteous. We can never do enough good deeds to be perfect. One sin destroys our perfection. And since we can't hope for perfection, we need an altogether different kind of righteousness, not degree, but kind than what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. We need Jesus's righteousness if we're going to call ourselves Christians. And we get it by believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we trust in him for our salvation. The only righteousness that is going to get us to heaven is Jesus's righteousness. You know, the Sermon on the Mount can be the most discouraging and the most encouraging words in the entire Bible at the same time when you think about it. It's discouraging because uh, we know that in our flesh we can never achieve these standards that we're called to achieve. And if we made a checklist of everything that Jesus has said so far, and we put a little line next to every command that Jesus said, has said so far, if we're really being honest with ourselves, We'd have to put our pencil down without making a single check mark next to one single thing and say, yeah, I'm, I'm good on that one. We're not good on any of those things. We can't do any of them because the standard is so high. And we, we are forced to acknowledge as sinners how high God's standards are and how far short of them we fall. So it's discouraging on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's so encouraging because we learn that salvation does not come from checking boxes on a list, right? It doesn't come from doing anything or based on our works at all. It's from Jesus's work based on what he has done on the cross. And Jesus lived the standards of the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, and then he died to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus gives us the standard, be perfect. But then he says, whoever believes in me shall never perish but have eternal life. And that's why John Newton called it amazing grace, because that's what grace is. He makes up for all that we lack. He paid our sin debt that we could never pay. So if we can't be perfect, what did Jesus mean when he said it? Well, the Greek word is the word teleos, and it means having reached its end, mature, complete, or perfect. And so the goal for a Christian is to behave like God behaves. Perfection is impossible. That horse left the barn a long, long time ago. Uh, But the goal is to grow in spiritual maturity so that the things that were not possible, say, six months ago, 
uh, are possible today. Maybe six months ago, you could never forgive this person who did this awful thing to you. But because the Holy Spirit has been doing a work in your life, today you can forgive that person. But we're not satisfied with that because maybe there's something that we can't do today that hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit we'll be able to do six months from now. Maybe there's somebody who has wronged us in some way that we just can't get past it. We continue to pray that God would help us with that, that he would continue to grow us spiritually so that maybe in six months the thing that's impossible today will become possible. And so uh, I would suggest that you have to have a testimony not only of how God has saved you. We all have to have that. But for some of you, that testimony may be something that God did in your lives 60 years ago or more. We also need to have a testimony of what God is doing in our lives today. How is he growing you today? Uh, How has he shown you uh, his power, uh, perhaps in being able to forgive somebody that you could not forgive only a couple of months ago? Keep a journal of your spiritual growth and write these things down so you can go back and be encouraged by them and see these milestones that you've achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the meantime, keep praying for Jesus to help you love your enemies as he loves your enemies. A Christian has the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit makes the impossible possible. And even though we fail from time to time, we will fail from time to time. It happens. But we're never done growing until Jesus returns or he calls us home. And we should never be content with where we are spiritually. And we should never be lazy about our spiritual growth. And we should never think that we've reached the mountaintop. We will never reach the mountaintop. We always have room to grow. We should realize that a disciple of Jesus follows hard after Jesus all the time, always choosing the more difficult path. We choose love over hate, forgiveness over a grudge, reconciliation over conflict, because that's the example that Jesus set for us. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to look like him, we have to learn to follow his example. And this, of course, is going to be a challenge almost every moment of every day as we try to live out these commands from the Sermon on the Mount. And some days we're not even out of bed before we are nurturing some hatred or ill feeling towards someone else. So how is it that we can incorporate Jesus's commands to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us into our lives? Well, I have a few uh, applicational points, and we'll see if uh, we can incorporate these into our lives. And the first one is this, that we surrender to Jesus. And, you know, you've heard this word, surrender, before, surrender my life to Jesus. Well, what exactly does that mean? We have to swallow so much pride and so much anger if we are ever going to even begin to surrender to Jesus We have to be willing to forget about getting even, and we have to turn the other cheek, and we have to love people who don't even like us at all. But Jesus is in the heart-changing business, and our lives will look different if we will allow him to do it. Remember that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will be done but thy will be done. And that's what surrender looks like. When Jesus wanted to do anything but go to the cross in his humanity, he said, not my will, but thy will be done, Father. Then he went to the cross and he died for his enemies. Jesus fully surrendered to the will of God. And so have you surrendered to Jesus? We need to ask ourselves that question. The second thing is this, be a disciple, not just a believer. A believer is someone who is convinced of the gospel. He believes that Jesus Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead. 
And he has eternal life and his salvation is secure, but he has never submitted to Jesus to the effect that he has allowed Jesus to become the Lord of his life and not just his savior. A pastor friend of mine calls this hell insurance. He says, I got my hell insurance and now I'm not gonna commit my life to Jesus, but I know that I'm not going to hell. And there are a lot of convinced believers who are not committed disciples. And a committed disciple is obedient to Jesus' teaching. He doesn't read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, that's too hard. I'm not even going to bother trying to do that. His goal is to be obedient to Jesus' commands. And the only way we can possibly love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us is if we are committed disciples of Jesus. A disciple does what Jesus did. What did Jesus do from the cross? He loved his enemies and he prayed for those who persecuted him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A committed disciple accepts that he's going to fail sometimes, but he's never, ever content with that. In fact, failure makes a disciple that much more committed to live a life that is pleasing to Christ, to to follow his commands, not to earn his salvation, but out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and out of obedience to him. A committed disciple submits to Jesus' authority and obeys Jesus' commands. If we believe in him as Savior, but we're not obedient to him, we may be saved, but we cannot truly call ourselves disciples. And so I ask, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? We need to ask that question. And finally, one way that we can show that we are disciples of Jesus Christ is to love our enemy. Think of one person who has wronged you. Somebody pop into your head? That's the person that God wants you to pray for this week. Set an alarm on your phone. Put a sticky note on your mirror. Do something to remind yourself to pray for your enemy this week. Ask Jesus to help you to love that person the way he does. Jesus will give you that ability. He really will. I think you'll find it if you try. He will help you. You can do it. He'll give you the ability if you will pray to him and ask for it. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can be like your father in heaven. Amen? Lord God, this is a difficult teaching, as all the teachings have been in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Lord, we acknowledge that we are not able to love our enemies and pray pray for those who persecute us without your power. And so, Lord... Help us to submit to your will and to your desire that we love our enemies even as you do, Lord. Help us to have a heart that's so overflowing with love, Lord, that it even spills over like your son and your reign to the people who do evil and good to us. Lord, just help us to submit. Help us, Lord. We want to be more like you. We want to be disciples who follow hard after you, Lord. Give us the power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.